All right, so this is from Matthew 27. When daybreak came, all of the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. After tying him up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him the wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. Above his head, they put the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. After the Sabbath, as the, day of, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and indeed he is going to, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. On the cross, Jesus died as God's true Passover lamb to set God's people free from sin. Then he rose from the dead so that they would no longer die. So if you've been with us, um, we've been walking through the whole story of the Bible. But we're not just calling it the story of the Bible, we're calling it the story of everything. Because it happens to be the greatest story that's ever been told, and it happens to be the only true story about humanity. And so tonight we're hitting like the climax, the, the pinnacle of that story. And so we're even switching up the way that we typically do our service be, because this is just kind of what everything has been building for. And so tonight we're going to be looking at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you got your Bible on you, I'd love it if you'd follow along with me. Um, you can start flipping to Matthew 26. <clears throat> Let me start with this. What would you be doing tonight if you knew that tomorrow you were going to die? Like, what would you choose to do with the last hours that you spent on earth? Because what we have in this story is a little window into the way that Jesus spent the last hours on, on the earth. It's Thursday night, and he knows that come Friday, he'll be hanging on a cross. Jesus knows what's coming to him, and the way that he chooses to spend his time is the way that a lot of us would probably spend our time with his best friends in the world. He's sitting around a table with essentially his family and they're, they're sharing a meal together. But it's not just a kind of an everyday meal. It's an important ceremony, kind of like 
think back to like Christmas Eve. Like for me, my family had the same traditions on Christmas Eve every year, the same rhythms, the same food that we ate. This was the same thing for them as they celebrated the Passover. Tonight is the Passover, and it's no coincidence that the night that Jesus is about to betray, be betrayed and sent to the cross is the Passover. Because if you remember what the Passover is, we talked about this just a few weeks ago when the Israelites, the people of God, were enslaved in Egypt and God hated that his people were in slavery. And so he sent these plagues up against the Egyptians and said, hey, let my people go. But the Egyptians were stubborn and they kept holding God's people in slavery. And so the plagues escalated until it got to the worst plague of all, the plague of the firstborn. And that night in Egypt, there wasn't a single household where there wasn't someone dead, except for the Israelites. Why? Because the Israelites were saved by the blood of the Lamb. This is what God told them is like, hey, there's no escaping this plague that's coming unless you put your hope and your faith and your trust in me. And the way that I'm going to deliver you from this curse of death is that I'm going to, I'm going to sacrifice a lamb in your place as, as a, a symbolic reality of the fact that death was coming to you, but I held it back and instead I put it on this symbolic lamb. And if you put that over the doorframe of your house, I'll save you and your family. And not only were they physically, literally saved, but this was a picture of what God is like, of how he operates, of how he saves his people. And so since that point that God passed over their house that night and saved them from the curse of death by the blood of the lamb, God's people had been celebrating the Passover. And they had been looking back to that, the greatest salvation in the history of Israel, and they had celebrated it year after year after year. And Jesus is sitting at the table, celebrating it with his best friends in the world. And these guys would have known exactly what that celebration was like. And so as Jesus is saying, these are the bitter herbs that remind us of our bitter slavery in Egypt, they would have been mouthing along the words with them because they would have heard it since they were little boys. But then Jesus does something absolutely crazy. Instead of continuing on with the festival that they all would have known, Jesus turns and he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is broken. This is my body broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he says, this is representative of my blood that's about to be shed for you. In other words, what Jesus is doing is he's taking the celebration that thousands of people had celebrated for hundreds of years, and he's saying all of that, everything that all of these people have been doing wasn't actually pointing back to the Exodus, but it was pointing forward to me. I am the true Passover lamb of God, and I'm about to be broken in your place. He's saying this whole thing has been about me. And the disciples are freaked out because Jesus just predicted his own death. And they come down from the upper room. They start walking through the city of Jerusalem. It's late at night. It's probably very quiet as families are celebrating their Passover meal together. There's a full moon, the full Passover moon ahead. And Jesus is walking out to the garden, probably running through his mind the memories that he has in this city. He's thinking about the man that he healed by that pool over there. He's thinking about his friends that he met over there. He's thinking about the showdown that he had with the Pharisees in the temple. And they walk out to the garden, a familiar place for them. But tonight it doesn't feel familiar. It feels eerie because Jesus is unraveling. Matthew 26, 38, this is what Jesus says. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, 
Jesus, the king of the universe, staggers off into the darkness and falls on his face in fear. What could possibly scare God? What could possibly make God be afraid? Some people would would answer that question by saying that he knows the cross is coming and he's scared of kind of the physical pain of the cross, but this is Jesus. Like this dude was so intense, he, he walked into the temple and he flipped over tables in front of the people that were trying to kill him. He walked on water, like he, he was hanging out in a boat with his disciples that was sinking. His disciples are freaking out, they're about to jump out of the boat and Jesus is taking a nap. And then Jesus walks out from his nap and he tells the wind and the waves to be quiet and they listen to him. This is not the type of dude that's just afraid about normal circumstances, even crazy circumstances like his impending death. What is it that makes the Son of God stagger in the garden? Look at the second half of verse 39. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So notice something here. Jesus does not pray, God, take the cross from me. Look back at it. What does he pray? He says, God, take the cup from me, which doesn't make any sense, right? What cup is this? He's not holding a cup. What's he referring to? Well, if you were a a reader of this originally, this would have been incredibly familiar to you because all over the scripture, the cup had symbolized one thing. The cup symbolized the wrath of God. God's fierce hatred of anything evil that negatively affects his creation. His his good hatred of evil things. That's what God's wrath was. And the cup symbolized that. And Jesus is scared because he's about to take on the wrath of God. Jesus is staring down the barrel of God's anger. And for the first time in his life, he's afraid. Why is God angry? He's angry with you. He's angry with me. Because he's angry at sin. And that's something that all of us, no matter how well we've lived, have indulged in. And and here's something we do culturally. is we, We rightly point out injustice in the world. And we hate injustice. And that's a good thing. And we should keep speaking out against injustice in the world as Christians. But what we don't realize is that we actually have committed injustice against God by the way that we've lived. So a lot of you know how this story keeps going. It's one of the saddest things about the story is that Jesus is betrayed by all of the people that he loves. He's betrayed by Judas for a couple months worth of salary. He's betrayed by Peter, one of his best friends in the world, who says that he'll never deny him. He's betrayed by the Jews who he's supposed to be their king. And it's easy for us to read the story and kind of point our finger at the people who betrayed Jesus. But you know who else betrayed him? We did. We did when we sinned. Like that's how the Bible talks about sin. It doesn't talk about it as this kind of abstract breaking of rules. It talks about it like you're breaking the heart of God. 
Because all God has ever done is loved you and pursued relationship with you. And this is what sin is, is it's breaking off relationship with him and it's transferring over relationship with his enemy. And it's aligning ourselves with Satan and death and sin, the enemies of this world that are fighting against God. And it's essentially looking at God and saying, hey, I'm a better God than you do. I know how to run my life. I hate you. That's what sin is. And I know it doesn't feel that intense all the time. I'm not saying I always feel like that's true, but I'm saying that's what God has revealed is true of the world. And, and the reason why I'm telling you this is not to sort of just like beat you down, okay? If you're new to Salt Company, I like to think we're not really like your typical stereotype of how this works. Like when you show up at Salt Company, my goal is not to like make you feel bad about your life, Okay, the reason why I'm telling you this is because you'll never see the cross as something done for you until you realize that it's something that was done by you. You won't realize its significance until you feel the weight of your sin against the God of the universe. And you won't see how beautiful it is. And so I tell you the bad news so that you can see how good the good news is. And here's part of the good news. Here is the ridiculous plan of God. The crazy thing about this story, I don't have time to unpack it, is that the whole time God is in control, that Satan and God have the exact same plan, which is crazy. Here's, here's the ridiculous plan of God. It's to pour out his wrath and his anger, but it's not to pour it out on you. It's to pour it out on his son. He wants to pour it out on Jesus so that you don't have to experience separation from God so that you don't have to experience his anger. Here's the plan, that the innocent would die so that the guilty could live. That's crazy, but it's beautiful. You've never known a love like that before. I've never known a love like that. Matthew 27, 45. Jesus innocently walks to the cross because he submits to that plan of God because he cares about you. Matthew 27, verse 45. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. The day that Jesus died, the world went dark. Like there was, there was a solar eclipse on that Friday. It, it's like creation was so disgusted by what was happening that it had to close its eyes because it couldn't see it anymore. Verse 46 and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in history, God the Father and God the Son are separated. God the Father forsakes his Son. And Jesus is crying out to his Father. So when I was in the middle of writing this and I'm having like this intense moment thinking about the cross, Graham started crying. Graham's my four-month-old son. It's super hard to write sermons when you got a four-month-old kid in the house. So Graham starts crying and I paused for a minute because there's, there's various different cries. There's one cry that's like a squawk and that just means feed me right now. And I'm always like, bro, you're like 800 pounds. You're fine. You don't need to be fed right now. And he continues to squawk. He always wins these arguments. It's, it's crazy how much power they have. There's another cry that he has that just means, I hate Tony. Graham really hates Tony. I don't understand why I feel bad about it, but he just cries every time he sees Tony. There's another cry that I call the 1 a.m. burst, which is just at one o'clock in the morning. He's all like, woo, 
I'm awake. Everybody else should be awake. And he's, and I walk over to him and he's like smiling. He's just pounding his legs like on his, his mattress. Like, Hey, be awake too. And it's like, sweet man. This is awesome. There's different cries, but there's one cry when he's either in pain or when he's afraid. And that's the cry that he cried. And I sprinted up the stairs because there's like something like biologically happening in me where I just feel this like like crazy compassion like I've never felt before and I like feel his pain. And, and like there isn't anything you could do to stop me from getting to that kid when he's feeling like that. Like that, that's the only thing in my world is I'm chasing him down. Here's what's happening on the cross is Jesus is crying out to his father in pain. And God wants to come to his aid, but there's only one thing in the world that would ever stop him from going to his son. And that thing is your cry. It's the cry of Christians saying, God, have mercy on me. I've screwed up. I've sinned. I'm not who I should have been. I need forgiveness. I need your help. And so God in that moment ignores the cry of his son so that he can turn his face towards you. God does, well, he answers, God says no to the prayer of Jesus in the garden to deliver him from the cross so he could say yes to your prayer asking him for forgiveness and mercy. That is ridiculous love. Like, hear me on this. The most important day of your life was not when you graduated and went to college. It's not going to be when you get married. It's not going to be when you have a kid. The most important day of your life happened 2,000 years ago when your Savior hung on a cross as the only solution for your sin. And the most important thing about you, the only way that you can move, move forward is what do you say about him? Is he actually your savior? Have you trusted in him for salvation? Or are you still trying to stand on your own two feet as if the cross wasn't necessary for you? That maybe it was for the other people, but it wasn't for you. The most important thing about your life is what you say about him. And here's what happens is if you accept Jesus into your life and you recognize that his sacrifice on the cross is the only hope that you have. There's something called the great exchange. It's like the stupidest deal in the history of the world. Here's this deal. Jesus is like, hey, I'll take your sin. I'll take your punishment. I'll take the consequences for it. And here's what you can have. You can have my perfection. See, what a lot of you have heard, what you know is that Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins, but you think of it as just like going from negative to neutral, like you just blotted out the negative stuff that you do, but it's more than that. Jesus lived this perfect life, and then he gives you credit for it, so that now when God sees you, God pours out his punishment towards you on Jesus, and he gives you all the blessing that Jesus earned, and he acts like you earned it. That's crazy. So here's, here's what's, what's true is that being fallen and being in Christ is even better than if you were somehow able to be perfect on your own. Because divine perfection is way like categorically better than human perfection. So even if you managed to be a perfect person, it still would have been categorically worse than accepting Christ and being found in him and receiving his perfect record as your new identity. And here's what's crazy. That's just the start of the good news. Like that, that's just the beginning. So lots of times when I talk to you guys, this is the gospel presentation I hear 
Like, I, I was a sinner, and Jesus died on the cross for my sins, so now I can go to heaven to be with him. Which is great and fine, and that's all true. What's the problem? God is still dead. Like, a dead God is not very helpful. Turns out, he actually came back three days later. Yeah, woo. Thanks, Austin. That was great. Uh, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the resurrection. Flip to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what I want to show you, that the resurrection impacts the past, that it's actually history, that it impacts your present life, and that it can change your future. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. What? Okay, read that again. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Okay, if Jesus is still in the tomb, then everything that you've done relating to religion is useless. Here's what Paul is doing, is he's putting the entire weight of his life and your life, he's putting the entire weight of history on one moment, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's saying all of Christianity rises and falls on this one significant truth. So like, here's what's true for me. If I talk to you after Salt Company and you could definitively prove to me that the resurrection didn't happen, I would immediately deny Christ, give up on Christianity, acknowledge that most of my life was a waste and shut down Salt Company. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this whole thing is useless. I am not interested in giving you some nice little morality, some rules to add to your life. I'm interested in presenting to you a God who is alive. And if he's not alive, let's pack up and go home. But here's what's also true. The opposite is also true. Here's what I mean by that. If I could prove to you that the crucifixion was a reasonable explanation, or sorry, not the crucifixion, the resurrection was a reasonable explanation for what happened in Jerusalem, that it's the best explanation for what happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, your only option is to fall on your face and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he's God, and everything he said is trustworthy, and your life should revolve around him. So some of you in this room I've talked to you are fighting really significant doubts. And, and it's actually one of the things I love about being in Salt Company is you guys aren't afraid to ask the hard questions that other people are afraid to ask. And I love that you're asking them. Like this, this should be a safe place to ask those hard questions. You don't understand why the world is the way that it is, why there's suffering and injustice and pain and racism and sin, why those things exist in our world. Some of you are hurting and you can't get your head around like why that stuff has happened in your life or you, or you read the Bible and you come across stuff that just doesn't make sense to you, that just conflicts with your entire understanding of the world and you don't know what to do with it. And I, and I want to suggest to you that you maybe change your strategy and how you approach some of those doubts. 
So here's the way that a lot of you approach those doubts. Okay, I want you guys know what Jenga is. You remember this? It's like the wood blocks that you stack on top of each other and you pull one out at a time. Okay, picture not just a Jenga stack, like a giant Jenga stack, because those are cooler, okay? Picture a giant Jenga stack, and each one of those blocks is a significant doubt that you have about Christianity. And so here is the strategy that most of you have is you go to the top of the tower, you pick out your biggest doubt about Christianity and you really investigate like that one block and you try and pull it off from the top of the tower. Here's the problem with that is you could spend your lifetime pulling off one block at a time from the top of the tower and you would never get to the bottom. You would always have those really significant doubts. This is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. It's like somebody took a baseball bat to the base of the Jenga tower and all the other doubts just like fell around it. This is what I'm saying is in the middle of your doubts, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an anchor that holds your soul to what's true. That even when you doubt, if Jesus is alive, then he's God and you can trust him. And even if you don't understand, you can trust him. So I want to talk about why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is reasonable. And I don't have time to nerd out on this as much as I want to, which is unfortunate. There's a lot more stuff that I got on this so we can talk about sometime, but let me just give you a little bit. Okay, the first reason why we know that Jesus rose from the dead is the people that were following him. So there's two specific people that are mentioned as followers of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, James and Paul. Okay, who was James? James was the half-brother of Jesus, what would it take to get you to sing a worship song to your sibling? Like, my sister Lindsay is great, but I'm not going to replace the lyrics to How Great Thou Art with her name. Like, then sings my soul, O Lindsay, to thee. Like, that, that's, that's rough. And I lived in her shadow my whole life. Like, she's, like, 35 on her ACT, like, just super smart. I'm not. And I, you know, I'm kind of over it, but not really. (laughs) Okay. James had to live with Jesus. I know he's great and everything, but can you imagine how annoying that would have been? Jesus was literally the perfect child. Like, James would do something good and be like, Mom and Dad, look at this. And Jesus is sitting in the corner with a halo. Like, Like, it would be so annoying. James is worshiping Jesus as God. Why? Because he saw Jesus rose from the dead. That's the only explanation for that. Paul, you know what Paul was doing before he was worshiping Jesus as God? He was murdering Christians. And then overnight, he's suddenly a Christ follower. Why? Because he saw the resurrected Jesus alive. Second reason why we can believe the resurrection, it happened in Jerusalem. Okay, the place where Jesus died and was buried is in Jerusalem. Here's why that's significant. Because if people in the first century were running around saying, hey, this guy rose from the dead and you wanted to disprove it, this would literally be like the easiest philosophy ever to disprove. All you would have to do is say, hey, his body's in the tomb. Done. Christianity is over. It'd be like if I was like, hey, guys, there are no disco balls in Profile Event Center. And you'd be like, and I'm done. It's over, right? Now, why that disco ball is there, I don't know. I don't love it, but it's there, right? And you can prove it. 
It's that, it would have been that easy to disprove the resurrection. And so lots of people are like, oh, the Christians like made this up and, and maybe they just kind of went insane or whatever. The entire city of Jerusalem would have had to gone and go insane for someone to not be able to disprove the resurrection. Lastly, maybe most importantly, there was eyewitnesses, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Okay, notice here, not everything in the Bible is equally important. That sounds crazy. Not everything in the Bible is equally important. It's all equally true, but it's not equally important. Here's the most important truth in the Bible. Here's the most important truth in history that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the most important truth in history. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then he appeared to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Okay, that falling asleep thing is weird. They're not just taking a nap. That's just like an expression for death. So a few of them died, most of them are still alive. Here's what Paul is doing, is he's citing his sources. So my high school English teacher liked to tell stories more than she liked to teach. And we like to let her tell stories. So for two years, I didn't learn anything in English, and it was amazing. But I showed up to college with no idea how to write a research paper. My idea of a paper was like, just kind of like, write what you feel about the world, and that'll be great. And as long as you argue it, it's fine. So I like showed up not citing any sources. I got a rude awakening in college. If you've written a research paper, what do you have to do? You have to cite all of your sources or what you're saying is illegitimate. So I think a lot of the way that most people think about Christianity is it's like how I wrote my papers, that it's just some people kind of writing whatever they want. But here's what Paul is doing. He's citing his sources. And the way that you cited your sources in the ancient world was that you had eyewitnesses that people could go talk to about a story to verify that, uh, that story. And here's how many witnesses he had. 500 who were still alive at the time. There was 500 people who were corroborating what Paul was saying about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You maybe could convince a few people to lie. It'd be really hard to convince 500. Okay, I could keep going. I'm not going to. I got to stop, okay? But there's more where that came from. But here's what I want to say. The primary reason that people doubt the resurrection is not because it's unreasonable. It's because they start from a default of doubt. They assume doubt even without proving it. And this is what I want to say. If you doubt the resurrection, you have to have a good explanation for what happened in Jerusalem. You have to have a better explanation for what happened in Jerusalem than that one. And it's going to be really hard to find. If you examine the evidence, the most logical explanation is that Jesus is alive. Okay, so that's the history that's the past of Jesus' resurrection. What's the present? How does that affect our life now? Look at verse 20 in 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, what's that whole firstfruits thing? What's he saying there? So two days ago, I saw a blade of grass, and it was glorious. I don't mean a dead one. I mean an alive one my first alive blade of grass for the year. And I just stood there staring at it a little bit because I'm weird. And I went home and told my wife about it, but I was pumped. Why? Because that blade of grass means there's more grass coming. And we get to be like normal human beings, like be outside and enjoy our lives, right? So 
that little blade of grass was a symbol that there was a lot more to come. It was the first fruits of what was coming. This is what this text is saying, is that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of what is about to come. In other words, Jesus rose from the dead as a promise to you that if you're in Christ, you can raise from the dead. And I do mean physically, bodily, in the future. And I'll talk about that in a second, and we'll talk about that at the end of the series. But I also mean right now, spiritually. Look at verse, verses 48 and 49. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image, uh, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Okay, so the man of dust was Adam. We all were like Adam. We all were born into slavery and sin and suffering and insignificance. Every human being, that had been the fate of every human being. But this is what this is saying, is that you can be risen spiritually into an entirely new life. You can become the image of the heavenly man, Jesus. What this is saying is that your salvation is so secure in Christ. It's so sure that he's going to win the victory that the heavenly you that will exist someday essentially already exists. And you can start to become like the heavenly you that you'll be someday. So now you have power that you didn't used to have before. Christians are powerful people because they have the powerful spirit of God that rose Jesus from the dead in them. And so what that means is, is the sin that you used to not be able to say no to, now you can say no to. You can actually live a different life. And instead of living for the dust, kind of this meaningless existence that just ends in death, you can live for life and hope for the life that's coming and you can live in life now. That's what the resurrection does now, but it also impacts your future reality. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 55. I think I've got this one on the screens. This is just a beautiful text. And so maybe you just sit back, kind of look at it and just enjoy it. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. On that day, you will become immortal. You will become eternal. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I gotta be honest, that verse is hard for me. Like where, O death, is your sting? Like, have you seen this world? Like, I remember standing in front of my dad's casket as a 16-year-old kid thinking about this verse. 
and going, there's the sting of death. Like it's, it's right there. My son's middle name is Douglas. He's, he's named after my dad. And he's never going to get to meet the man who he's named after. That's the sting of death. Like I talked to some of you and you're, you're fighting with like depression and anxiety and man, you've got messed up parents. You've got moms who berated you and dads who left you. There's some of you that, that have walked through like divorce and you've been used and abused by people and you don't understand what's going on in this world. And it's like, man, that seems like the sting of death. And here, here's what's true, is if Jesus had not risen from the dead, that would have been the end of the story. Death would have won. But that's not the end of the story. Because Jesus rose. Like, my dad is in a new whole body that has no cancer in it, and he's looking Jesus in the face, and he's going to get to be with him forever, and one day I'm going to stand next to my dad and hopefully my son and Jesus in eternity. Like, that's the hope that we have. Like, here's what Jesus did in the resurrection, is he rebelled against the status quo of evil and pain and suffering in this world, and he shook his fist at it, and he said, you've got no power anymore. And he looked at the greatest enemy of human beings like death, had stalked human beings throughout all of human history and every human being throughout all of time, the end of their story was they lived and then they died. They lived and then they died. Death had always won until it met Jesus. And in Jesus, it met someone that it couldn't conquer. And Jesus, yeah, died. He went into the grave to prove that he was stronger than the grave. And then he rose up out of that grave and he killed death. And he said that it doesn't have any hold on us anymore. He said that now, not only can he not die, but we can't die if we're in Christ. That death is just waking up into eternity. That it's opening up our eyes to him. And that he now rules. Not Satan, not sin, not suffering, not pain, not the crap going on in your life. And, and I, like, this is where I'm supposed to, like, apply this message and everything seems sort of, like, dumb and... I don't know how to do it. And so here's my application. Isn't that awesome? Like, isn't Jesus amazing? Like, that's what I've got for you, you know? And if you feel like that thing in your heart that like feels a little bit alive, you know what that is? That's hope. That's hope rising up in you. Hope that you couldn't have on your own, but hope that there's life coming. That one day, Jesus, like he did to that little girl in that story, will whisper to Letha Coombe, little girl, wake up, and he'll whisper that in your ear, and you will get up out of the grave. And this entire creation will get up out of the grave, and it'll shake off death, and everything will be made new, and it'll be right again. Whenever I see, I've talked about this before, whenever I see a sunrise... I think about heaven. Because here's what you see right before the sun rises. And I know you're college students, so you've like maybe never seen this. Should get up early sometime, watch the sunrise. Here's what you see right before the sun rises. These little glimmers of light coming up over the horizon. And as you look off at those little glimmers of light, those glimmers of light are proof that the sun is rising. 
and that in a minute, night will be turned to day, that darkness will be light, and it's proof that the sun will rise. This is what I'm saying is the resurrection of Jesus Christ was this little ray of light coming up over the horizon that's proof that one day everything will rise, that in a moment he will come back and he'll turn darkness into light, that this place will go from being night and all of a sudden it'll be day. And resurrection life will pour out into this world and every knee will bow before King Jesus. That's the hope that we have. In the beginning, God created all things and lived with human beings on his good earth. But humankind betrayed him, so humans were cursed and removed from his presence. While God promised to destroy the curse, he, almost prom- he also promised to bless the earth forever through his redeemed people. However, God's people were enslaved in Egypt until they were set free by the blood of the Lamb. God lived among his people and ruled over them through his law as he led them back home. Now, God's people betrayed him again and never came home, but God promised that his coming king would live with them forever and give them new hearts. After years of waiting, King Jesus came, lived with his people, and began to establish a new way of life under his rule. And then tonight's sentence, on the cross, Jesus died as God's true Passover lamb to set God's people free from sin. Then he rose from the dead so that they would no longer die. Let's pray. That is a beautiful truth, Jesus, and I love that you have declared yourself king over everything because you are better at being king. And we believe, Jesus, we believe in your resurrection. We believe in your death for us. We believe that it's the only possible solution that we have. We believe that that one day that this world will rise and that we'll rise with it and then we'll get to see your face And we're just looking forward to that day. And so we're going to try and live here in a broken, messed up world. We're going to try and live as imperfect Christians, forgiven Christians, hoping and believing and holding on for that day. And thanks for the hope that you've given us. That it's not dependent on us, but it's dependent on you. And so Jesus, for for the people in here tonight that are striving, that are trying to get it done on their own, help them to just take a breath and believe again in what's true of you, that you did all of the work for them and there's nothing left for them to do. Set people free tonight. We want to be free in you. We love you. Amen.